The scripture this morning is the chapter, the whole chapter of John 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it But he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked again, again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. 
He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Morning, everyone. Welcome back to John 9. And in case you weren't here last week, I want to give you a a very brief recap. Uh, I began preaching on this passage last week. And in that sermon, I, I shared a simple summary of the whole passage, which I imagine you just picked up on as Johanna read. But here it is. Jesus healed a blind man, and for various reasons, it caused various responses among various people. I think that's the summary of the facts of the matter. I shared with you also the big idea from this. What, what is the main thing that John means us to get from that uh, idea or this passage? And, and that is that is this. Jesus' ability to give physical sight to the blind pointed to his ability to give spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. And I also shared with you the simple structure of the passage as well. Verses 1 through 7 describes the healing itself. Verses 8 through 34 describes the responses that Jesus got to the healing. And then the very end, 35 to 41, describes Jesus' interpretation of the events, the responses and the healing itself. So in in looking at the healing then, which we did last week, I pointed out that the man's obscurity, we don't know his name or much about him at all, and Jesus' means of healing, spit and mud and water, are meant to help us keep our focus on the main focus, namely Jesus Christ's power and mission. And in looking at the man's response, which again we also did last week, I tried to help you see from the text that he simply comes across as one initially until we get to the very end, which we'll talk about this morning. But until Jesus comes back on the scene, his response is simply one who is thankful to now be able to see Convinced that Jesus is some kind of man of God, he calls him a prophet, but he doesn't even seem sure about that. Confused about why everyone is making things so complicated. My whole life, I've not been able to see and now I can. Why are we getting so weird about this? And ultimately annoyed by the Pharisees' obstinacy. Why are these people treating me like this and the man who healed me like this? Well, finally, I mentioned that there are two Embedded in this, in fact, in the very beginning and the very end, are two significant theological ideas, principles, truths introduced here. And I'm going to deal with those in a, in a few weeks. And what are those two? Number one, Jesus' uh, uh, explanation of the source of the man's blindness. The religious leaders thought it was one thing, and the neighbors thought it was one thing, and the disciples thought it was one thing. But Jesus said it was something different entirely. We'll spend a whole sermon on that. And then secondly, Jesus' explanation at the end of what your real need is to the man who was born blind and to the Pharisees who were blind guides to the blind. So we'll spend a whole sermon on that as well. So this morning we'll pick up where I left off. We'll start with the remaining three responses. We saw the man's. This morning we'll look at the man's neighbors, his parents, and then the Pharisees. And then finish up with brief overview of Jesus' explanation of all of this. Just like last week, what, what are you 
what do I hope and what do I think John hopes you would do with this? Just like last week, the main takeaway for us is to pray earnestly that God would give sight to the blind, the spiritually blind, and to help those of us who can see, who believe in Jesus already, to increase the clarity of our vision. Even just this morning, as Johanna read, I I find my found myself doing more and more of this as I get older. But but that's just a metaphor for our inability to see Jesus perfectly for who he is. God is granting us that. Let's pray that he would, according to his promises this morning. And along with all of that, uniquely to this morning, I I want you to see this, and I think I'm going to be able to help you see this. John intends us to consider our own response to Jesus in light of the responses recorded here and what caused them what was under them and what does that sh- how does the, how does that show up in our lives so let's let's pray for God's help in all of that God thank you for this passage thank you for Jesus and his miraculous power as John said earlier in the exhortation that for his sovereignty over all things thank you for that thank you that it shows up in all kinds of ways in John's gospel and his teaching and his courage, his authority, his miracles. Thank you that we get to see that. We catch another glimpse of that in this passage. But thank you also that there is more grace to be had, that you give sight to the blind so that you can know, so that we can know that you can give sight to the blind. Open our eyes to that this morning, I pray. Help us to see and help us to see with greater clarity all in order that we might live the life that you have made us to live, as Jesus will tell us in the next chapter, the abundant life. Please help us to see in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope uh, the, the refrain of the last song we sang, Show Us Christ, I hope this sermon helps you to sing that with greater oomph, greater desperation, greater knowledge of your need for God to answer that in order for his word not to land on us dead. Once again, one of the more remarkable aspects of this passage, get your heads around this, please, is the way that John recorded the responses of the four different people or the four different groups. Get your head around this. I'm going to try to help you here. Before we get into the remaining three, I want to, I want you to feel this. Each response was recorded in different ways for different reasons. Or each each response was driven by something slightly different, but ultimately one main cause. It should stand out to us. I mean this. If you're careful, Pastor Mike and John and and Matt and and Mark have been helping us in Berea to read the Bible as God means us to, if you've been doing that, this was a good uh, opportunity, you would have noticed something. Of the 41 verses in this chapter, Jesus is only present in 14 of them, barely a third. And only two of the 41, only two are about the miracle that Jesus performed itself. The vast majority of the passage, more than two-thirds, is dedicated to the response Jesus got from the miracle. That's remarkable. That should stand out to us. We've been talking about structure. John structured this passage more around the responses than the miracle itself or Jesus being there himself. So we have to ask ourselves, 
Why is that? What's, what's John getting at by doing that? Why are the responses given such, such disproportionate attention? This becomes even more of a question if we've been paying attention to how John has structured the gospel up to this point, not just in chapter 9, but the first eight, ver- eight chapters as well. And especially if we're paying attention, we'll notice this isn't unusual. This isn't the first or the second time that Jesus Miracles, the things he's done, have gotten considerably more attention. I'm sorry, the, the response that people gave to the things that Jesus said and did got more attention than the thing itself. Now, i got to ask you, especially when it comes to a miracle, doesn't that seem somewhat counterintuitive? Doesn't that sort of go against what you would imagine ought to be the case? If your goal which John says it is in chapter 20, if your goal is to help people believe that Jesus is the Christ, doesn't it seem like emphasizing the miraculous powers, the uniquely miraculous powers of the Christ is the way to go? If your goal is to convince people that Jesus is the Christ, doesn't it make more sense to spend more time on his miracles which demonstrate that he's the Christ? Doesn't it seem like the miracle is the more impressive part of the story? Of course it is, in one sense. But John isn't only after helping people to see that Jesus is the Christ. So consider this, Grace. The miracle of new birth is no less miraculous than the miracle of new sight. And in some ways, it's far more miraculous still. John was interested in helping his readers understand that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Savior of the world. That's why he did record the miracles that he did. Who but the Christ could perform such wondrous works? So he does want that. But John was even more interested in helping his readers believe that Jesus is the Christ. See the difference? It's one thing for John to reveal carefully and clearly the fact that Jesus is the Christ and the things that help us to see that. But he's even more interested in helping his readers believe that Jesus is the Christ. For it is by believing in him, not merely understanding his claims that we find life, which is the second part of John's purpose in writing this gospel. And to that end, describing the various responses of those impacted by Jesus Christness, including his miracles, helps his readers avoid the folly of those who rejected Jesus and embrace the childlike faith of those who received him. So in considering the responses of others and seeing the futility of so many, We can see what faith in Jesus looks like and what it doesn't, where it comes from and where it doesn't. So in that regard, the main thing for us to see is that, and this is this is a really big deal. I'm going to come back to this a couple of times. The main thing for us to see, Grace, think about this. If you don't believe yet that Jesus is the Christ, if you're not yet trusting in Jesus, or imagine your neighbor who isn't yet, or your friend or your child, What do they imagine it would take to believe in Jesus? What what kinds of things might they tell you that they would need to see or hear or experience or feel before they would? And so get this. In that regard, the main thing for us to see is that it is not merely being in Jesus' presence. Someone might say, "If, if I could just see him, like if he were here in front of me. But the main thing for us to see is that it is not merely that. It is not merely hearing him teach or hearing the authority which he can uniquely teach with. It is not merely witnessing his miracles, seeing him do something that I nothing else could explain. 
and Grace, here, here's a really big deal. It's not even merely being the recipient of a miracle. It's not even that. It's not even that you were born blind and now you can see. That alone is not enough. That's what John is trying to help us see in showing us these responses. Some other grace is needed still. Again, that's, that's the sermon in a few weeks. But understanding that helps us understand why John gave so much attention, so much more attention to the responses of those who had those exact experiences. It was meant to smash the mistaken notion that if only I could see Jesus or touch him or witness Jesus or find answers to all my questions about Jesus, if if only he could help me overcome these intellectual obstacles that I have. It's meant to smash the notion that that's enough. As we consider the experiences with Jesus, those described by John here, coupled with the reaction to those experiences, the ones that so many believe is all it would take to become a Christian, let us plainly see, again, that some other grace is needed still. That is, having the eyes of our hearts darkened by sin, we need God to grant spiritual sight that we might truly see Jesus, even if he's standing in front of us and believe in him. So with that, having already considered the response of the man Jesus healed last Sunday, let's consider the response of the second group mentioned by John. Those who live near him, those who were closest to him, those who had watched him grow up and grow up blind, his neighbors. As you can probably easily imagine, word spread quickly. There's the claim out there now that this guy we all know was blind, but now he can see. And so again, word spread quickly that a man they were familiar with, had been healed from a lifetime of blindness. The response to that news also was entirely predictable. Essentially, they were curious and not quite sure what to do with this news. And so if you look at verse 8, it says, The neighbors said to those, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some uh, Some said right away, Yeah, it's him. Others, though, wondered or said, no, but it is, but he is like him. Again, understandably, since this kind of thing doesn't happen very often, in fact, the man is going to claim later in verse 32 that not since the beginning of the world has it ever happened. It doesn't happen very often. And so just as you and I would likely do, again, imagine, picture your neighbor, your actual neighbor, think of that person. Imagine that they've been blind their whole life, you've lived next to them their whole life, and now all of a sudden, the claim is around that they can see. Imagine that. Picture that in your head. Their first response is understandable. They're initially skeptical, even. It was to try to come up with a more reasonable a more reasonable explanation. Okay, that, I mean, that sounds neat. Kind of hope that's the case, but there's got to be some other way to explain this. They wondered if there was just... Some sort of mix-up. Perhaps it was simply a matter of mistaken identity. Perhaps there was a man in town who looked just like the blind beggar, and a few people just mistook them for the same person, and that's how, you know, rumors get started. That'd be a lot more common and a lot easier to explain than a genuine miracle among us. Well, apparently the man then entered the scene, and upon seeing him for themselves, and upon his insistence that he is the same guy, that notion quickly came off the table. They, they saw that it obviously was the same man. And so they turned their questioning, therefore, from if to how. Not just if this happened, but how did it happen? How did it happen? 
accepting the fact that it was the man that they knew as blind who could now see. Verse 10, they said to him, then how, how were your eyes opened? It's like they said, okay, it's, it's you, but what in the world? <laughs> what, how did this take place? Well, the man, as we saw last week, gave a simple and straightforward account. A man named Jesus did it. That's what I, they tell me anyway. I couldn't see him, but a man named Jesus did it. Well, of course, they're wondering how. That's who, but how? He went on, of course, then. Put some mud in my eyes and told me to wash. I did, and now I see. That's it. It's not complicated. There wasn't anything overly weird about it other than that I was blind and now I see. And so naturally then they said to him, okay, okay, we're, we're sort of with you. Where is this guy? We want to see him too. Verse 12. Of course they wanted to see and meet the man who could perform such marvelous works. Who, who wouldn't, right? Tell us where to find him so we can meet the man who can do such amazing things. Well, finally, and I think at least curiously, John tells us way of response to all of this, that in the end, the neighbors decided to bring the man to the Pharisees. So verse 13 tells us, we're not told why they did this. Perhaps they thought the Pharisees could better explain what happened or, or what they ought to do about it. Perhaps on the other hand, like we'll see with the man's parents, they were they feared the wrath of the Pharisees if they failed to report such a thing. We're, we're not sure. John doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us. Regardless, the upshot of all this, the result, what's the essence of their response to the, to the miracle? It's confusion, curiosity, and a type of, and, and here's, I think this is right. It's a type of non-disbelief. It's a weird way to say it, but I think that's how to say it. It's a type of non-disbelief. In the end, they don't not believe. John doesn't tell us that the neighbors rejected Jesus or his miracle, but tragically, he also doesn't tell us that any of them came to a place of genuine faith. They simply handed the man off to the religious leaders. So that leaves us with the question of how how now that he's in their, the presence of the Pharisees, how would they respond to this man? In his news, we've seen seven chapters of how we had probably a decent idea, but how would they respond? With the man having been brought to them, the Pharisees, like the neighbors, began with a series of questions. Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked the man how he had received his sight. It's telling, and it'll become clear in a minute, that John began his account of the Pharisees' response with an acknowledgement that it was on the Sabbath that Jesus did what he did. But for his part, undoubtedly sensing, probably already aware of, but certainly sensing already the displeasure of the Pharisees with Jesus, did you notice this? The man gave a simpler, a more streamlined a more sanitized version of the events than he did with his neighbors. He gave the Pharisees less details. It was a simpler account. He likely answered in that way so as not to give them any unnecessary bullets for their guns. Their guns, he could tell, were already pointed at Jesus and were turning towards him, which they would shortly. The result of the man's stripped-down answer was that they sort of turned away from him for a minute and turned to each other. Like the neighbors, they too tried in vain to make sense of things. They debated among themselves, trying to make sense of things. 
and here's the here's the key to that. They tried in vain to make sense of things by coming up with some alternative explanation than what really happened. That's a fool's errand. We spend a lot of our lives trying to come up with alternative explanations to things as they really are. And they were no exception. So in 16, it says, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how could a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. Once again, I I find it fascinating that the Pharisees seem initially, they're going to backtrack in a minute, but initially they seem to accept the fact of the miracle. If Jesus hadn't healed the man, how could they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath? How could that first group accuse him of breaking the Sabbath if they didn't believe that he had healed the man? And the second group simply assumed that Jesus did. The initial debate among them, therefore, wasn't over how to explain some sleight of hand that Jesus had done. Instead, it was simply about how to understand the relationship between what Jesus had done and the his status before God. Some suggested that Jesus couldn't be right with God in doing this since he did it on the Sabbath, and that would be a sin. The rest didn't know what to think, but couldn't imagine someone doing what Jesus did apart from the power of God. And so it seems to have been more of a debate about how what Jesus did related to God than it was about the thing itself. Unable to accept the possibility that Jesus was who he said he was, the Christ, the Son of God, and that his motives were what he said they were, the glory of the Father and the good of the whole world, and that his mission was what he said it was, to reveal the Father's will to the world and to save the world from sin, instead of responding as they should have, in awe and wonder and joy and submission, the Pharisees began devising tactics to explain away the goodness of Jesus' healing. That was their first response. That is, they immediately started looking for ways to discredit both Jesus and the man he had healed. So against the man, they laid the trap of compelling him to pass judgment on the man who had healed him. If if he were to accept Jesus' miracle as a godly act from God, they'd be able to accuse him of sin as well. And so in 17, they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And with his reply, he said, he is a prophet. With his reply, they had what they needed or what they believed to be a first piece of evidence against him. They thought that condemned him. And to further discredit him, they backed up a bit now, like I said earlier, and attempted, they said, okay, well, wait a minute. Maybe maybe this wasn't a miracle at all anyway. Let's back up a bit. And attempted to deny that it was the man who they knew had been born blind. Maybe it was, in fact, a sleight of hand. And by the way, that's S-L-E-I-G-H-T. I always thought it was slight, S-L-I-G-H-T. It's not, so there you go. Not as impressive to you as it was to me, apparently. Maybe it wasn't a miracle. Like in the picture here now, it's like a political strategist or a, a head football coach who knows they have something coming up and they've got to devise a way to accomplish their purposes. And they're just throwing out different ideas that might work. Therefore, in verses 18 and 19, we read, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, that is anyway, until they called his parents and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? So the second round of strategy proved as fruitless as the first. 
For when they called the man's parents in to ask them, they confirmed that he was their son, and they had been born blind, and then played ignorant about everything else. They didn't, they didn't help the Pharisees. All right. That strategy is not going to work. We got to rethink this again. And so from there, they returned their attention to the man. 24. For a second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, listen to these words, Grace. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. By charging the man to give glory to God. That's what they're saying. Man who was born blind now can see. Give glory to God. That's a good start. But do so by agreeing with us and acknowledging that this man is a sinner. They were in that with tragic irony, demanding that he do that which is reprehensible. Grace, we we need to pause here for a second. You need to see and feel this. Consider the fact that this might have been among the top lies in the history of mankind. Did you notice that? What greater lie has ever been told than that by accusing Jesus of sin, we bring glory to God? And in that, we need to see the zeal and certainty of these men. In one of the worst lies ever told, and give glory to God by learning humility. (laughs) where they knew only pride. Well, definitely at this point, wise to their motives. The man deftly sidestepped their trap by simply restating the facts. Still undeterred, the response of the Pharisees was to return to questions of how Jesus had restored this man's sight. And again, the man evaded their tricks and turned it all back on them. Well, at this point, things came off the rails quickly. In rapid succession, the Pharisees began to revile him. They claimed to be true disciples of Moses, which stood in direct contrast to him, they said. They denied even knowing where Jesus came from, pronounced the man to have been born in utter sin, and finally cast him out of the synagogue. It's hard to see anything in their response other than proud, zealous, Ignorant men, blind to the things of God, though certain they were right with God. Listen to this, because this is what's happening. They are the blind attempting to lead the seeing away from the one who gives sight. (laughs) In the Pharisees, we see men who are blind attempting to lead the seeing away from the one who gives sight. Finally, in the course of the Pharisees' interrogation, as we just saw, the man's parents were brought forward. And questioned. And in that, we get to see their response. And in some ways, it's the most tragic of all. Their son was born blind. I don't, I know some of the parents in this room have children who are born with certain hardships. Their son was born blind. And in their culture at that time, he was forced, therefore, to beg as a means to survive, to go on the street and beg people for money. Can you imagine? I I, I know some of you can. The pain, the sadness, the shame, the embarrassment, the grief, the desperation. It's just not hard to picture, is it? For over 20 years, probably, of this man's life. Then one day, out of nowhere, you weren't looking for it, probably, weren't asking for it. Out of nowhere, a man came, no fanfare and not asking for any kind of money or Payment of any kind heals their son, enabling him to see for the first time in his life. What what joy 
they should have known. What thankfulness, what relief, what hope, what allegiance to the one who could do this. Instead, however, and again, get your head around this. They are forever written into the word of God as knowing only the fear of man. Undoubtedly, there was more to the reaction than this, I'm sure. And yet, at the only time the spotlight of God was on them, we're told in verse 22 that they said the things they said to the Pharisees because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Their response was to fear man rather than God. Rather than give glory to God by rejoicing in his mercy, this unbelievable expression of mercy to the son that they loved, rather than give glory to God by rejoicing in his mercy, which ought to, for them, have paled or or completely overwhelmed their fear of the relatively puny punishment of these wicked men. The man's parents are described as doing whatever they could to distance themselves from Jesus and then eventually distance themselves even from their own son, their own miraculously healed son, repeating, he is of age, ask him, just leave us out of this. And that leads us to the final section of the passage and in it, Jesus' explanation. Again, most of this we'll get to in a couple of weeks, but all of that, again, leads to the final few verses where Jesus returns to the scene. Having allowed word to spread and everyone to form their opinions on the matter, Jesus came back to explain to the man and the Pharisees how they ought to think, how they ought to have responded about or to what he had done. Well, at some point after the man had been driven from the synagogue, Jesus sought him out. Jesus sought him out at the beginning and Jesus sought him out in the end. In the meantime, he wandered. Jesus' message to him was simple. How should you have responded? How should you respond still? Believe in me. That's that's the short version. Jesus said to him essentially, I've given you spirit, I've given you physical sight. I gave I gave the eyes in your head the ability to see. I've given you physical sight, and there therein I overcame the greatest problem you believed you have. That's a big deal. What do you think your greatest problem is, Grace? Learn from this man. I I overcame the greatest problem you believed you had. But I'm here to tell you now that I did that to help you see, pun intended, that you have a greater problem still. More than that, I'm here now to heal you from that as well. I healed you from the first so that you could know about the second so that I could heal you from that as well. Your greater problem is that you lack spiritual sight. I know because I'm standing in front of you now and you still don't see me. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and worshipped him. The most remarkable aspect of these few verses is hidden somewhere between verse 37 and verse 38. You already know what I mean? The most remarkable aspect of these few verses is hidden somewhere between 37 and 38. Somewhere in there, the additional grace of God I mentioned at the beginning was given to this man. Having already been miraculously healed by Jesus, having now seen Jesus in person, having heard him speak, 
the man still, prior to 37, couldn't see Jesus for who he was. But at some point before 38, Jesus miraculously gave man eyes to see, real eyes to see. It's what Paul prays for in Ephesians 1. He prays that God would open the eyes of the Ephesians' heart. Jesus did that somewhere hidden before verse 38, such that he was finally able to believe and then worship. How awesome is that? That's that's the whole sermon in a few weeks. Likewise, Jesus interpreted the situation for the Pharisees as well. And likewise, I'll mainly unpack that later. For now, I want to help you see that Jesus was talking to the man. I'm sorry, that as Jesus was talking to the man, the Pharisees seemed to have been lurking nearby. It's like they were just around the corner listening in, kind of creeping near nearby. And But John tells us that listening in, what they heard shocked and incensed them. Jesus' explanation for them was ultimately the same that he had given to the man. That is, Jesus told them that although they had always had physical sight, unlike this guy, they had always lacked spiritual sight, the the spiritual sight that they needed far more. Like the man, this was evidenced by their complete inability to recognize the true nature of the Son of God, the Christ, standing before them. And like the man, they needed more grace than their lifetime of physical sight. Get this. This is you, this is me, this is everyone before coming to faith in Christ. This is your neighbors, the people you're pleading with to trust in Jesus, your children. They needed more grace than their lifetime of sight and study and money and power and nice clothes and prestige could provide. So again then, what are we to make of the various responses to Jesus' miraculous healing of the man born blind? What are we to do with them? How are we to respond to them? In considering these varying responses, it is right to consider ourselves and look into ourselves in light of them. So as you consider the man's neighbors, do you find any hints in yourself of mere non-disbelief? That will not save you. If you merely have non-disbelief, that is not sufficient to connect you with the saving grace of Jesus. Are there any hints of unbelieving belief in you? Are you more curious about Jesus than you are trusting in him? Are there? Are you more concerned with how people might respond to you if you believe in Jesus than you are about the truth of Jesus? How about the man's parents? Does the cost of the life Jesus calls you, calls you to cause more angst and fear in you than the hope and joy of his promises? Are you ever privately thankful for Jesus' work, but publicly unwilling to acknowledge it for fear of what others might think? Do you consider the Pharisees? Is there any animosity? If you're you're not a Christian, perhaps, is there any animosity in you towards Jesus? Perhaps because he doesn't fit the mold you've made for him. Perhaps it's because you thought he should have healed something he didn't heal or fixed something that remains broken. Perhaps it's because believing in him means that you have to surrender your own pride. Perhaps because you believe you deserve answers to questions that he's not yet given. And as you consider the man, are you able to see the obvious rightness of his ultimate trust in Jesus? Can you see how clearly Jesus opposed, or how clearly Jesus opened the man's spiritual sight as well as his physical eyes so that he could see and believe? Are you like the man in simple and childlike trust, or are you attempted to believe that what you really need are more answers or more proof? 
John focused on these responses in large measure to compel us to ask these questions of ourselves. As we do, let us be freshly reminded that it is the grace of God that saves us. Left to our own devices, even as objects of a divine miracle, we cannot see God for who he is or ourselves for who we are. If we are to see and believe, then it is owing again to the grace of God alone. And so I adjure you, I encourage you, I admonish you, seek it today, the grace of God, and you will find it. For such is the amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord.